0: Everybody doing? It is Kevin Adams, and I'm back with the amazing Asia Lions. Asia, how are you?
1: I can't complain. A beautiful Sunday here in
0: Colorado. The weather keeps getting nicer and nicer uh, after all that snow that we ended up March with, but uh, I'm loving it. Uh, but uh, we are excited to be here again for episode five of the Exit Interview. Um, so, uh, remember you guys can follow us at two dope teachers on Instagram and Twitter, and you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash two dope teachers and a mic. Our email address is two dope teachers at gmail.com. And you can listen to us on Apple Spotify podcasts or at mr. you like how I said that Asia? <laughs> if you do listen to us on apple give us a five-star review please please give us a review it helps people find us and it gets our content out and finally if you want to support us because uh it takes money to do this amazing stuff that we're doing here at uh the exit interview uh head on over to our patreon.com slash teachers where you can become a patreon a patron For just five dollars a month and uh we hate to tell you guys this but the book the the we got this book is gone so thank you to those five uh patrons who joined us you've got the book copy coming some other good stuff coming to you so yeah uh are are we ready are we ready to get this started asia you got anything on your mind for the people before we jump in No,
1: I'm just ready and excited and I'm looking forward to this interview and so let's go ahead and roll.
0: Let's go, let's go. So tell us about our guest, who we got, tell the people who we got.
1: So we're here with Dr. William A. Smith who is a professor at the University of Utah and we brought him on our show today because of his work with racial battle fatigue Um, and so he's going to tell us some of his the backstory of the research he's done and make some corrections to some misconceptions that he's heard out here on the web and Um, hopefully answer some questions for us and our audience members as well as the folks that we've had who've been interviewed in the past um, who've experienced racial battle fatigue. So hopefully you can fill us in on some things. How are you today, Dr. Smith? I'm
2: doing well. How about you?
1: No complaints, no complaints. So can you just start us off with telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure, sure. I'm I'm from Chicago. Um, Been at the University of Utah for about, I think this is my 22nd year. I've been a professor since 1992. Um, I did my undergraduate in psychology, my master's in counseling psych, and I focused on social psychology and education uh, for my doctorate. And that kind of led me eventually to looking at, you know, just human behaviors, uh, stress-related illness for uh, black people. And then eventually after moving to Salt Lake City, is when things kind of came together for me to um, look at this from a racial battle fatigue lens. Okay, awesome. So tell us,
3: like,
1: what about Utah? Yes, uh,
2: yes, I see
1: the, I yes. W- Like we see the smile on your face. What we, about Utah?
0: We, we are in Denver, Colorado. So, so we might have an exactly. idea of, of some of the ways that it, uh, yeah. uh, being in Utah triggered it. But right. we, we'd love to hear you. Yeah. But you yeah. know,
2: you know you are a little bit better than us as far as like black population, but you know, not too much. <laughs> so, you know, my students at Western Illinois University, when they found out I was leaving to come to Salt Lake, they used to see, they called me brother professor. Yeah. And um, they like, you too black for Utah. <laughs> 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 so, you know, the thing that got me was, um, you know, when, you, when you're in the Midwest, especially in the Chicagoland area, it's just yep. flat, flat, you know. Yep. And if you don't live on the lake, you know, you, you don't have a view of anything. And so yeah. when I came here, it was my first time in Salt Lake City, and my wife uh, told me to be open-minded. Um, and, you know, it just blew me away. The mountains were so gorgeous. And I always wanted to go to actually Denver, um, but I came here first, and then we did a trip to Denver, and I loved the view of Salt Lake City much more than Denver because the mountains are so far out there mm-hmm. and we're like surrounded by mountain views. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's very beautiful. My department was a, a pretty radical department. And so you had people dealing with uh, anti-racist uh, activism. Uh, they were socialists, feminists and everything else, you know, so yeah. I kind of felt at home and it yeah. was probably the perfect place for me to do the work I do. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Yes. So t- um, when we talked to you earlier, you were saying that Wikipedia had your story all wrong <laughs> and that your work started, t- when you started talking about racial battle fatigue in higher ed with um, the educators, the professors in that space, is that correct?
2: Yeah, that was my first research was on um, black uh, professors in higher education um so black women and men yes and so the first time the very first time that I presented racial battle fatigue actually I think was in Chicago at the uh association American Psychological Association and and then a few other places following that so the first uh professional introduction of it was in 2003 although some of the um Uh, reports out here you see in in articles and say 2008, something like that. But no, it was much earlier. And then later I did a focus on black men. And like now I'm doing the folk, I have a national study on black women and racial battle fatigue. Mm.
3: Oh, awesome.
1: So when you first introduced this information and you were talking to folks about it in these conferences, what was the response?
2: Well, you wouldn't believe it Uh, initially. I had a lot of haters out there, so I was I was getting attacked, you know. Oh was, wow! Yeah, it was all in your head, and uh, you 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 just talked about soft people, marshmallows, and huh. you know, things like that. And huh. then the word got out because you know, don't let the PhD fool you. I'm from yeah. Chicago, I, you know, I can hold my own. So yeah,
0: we don't we do you know. about y'all from the streets. We know how y'all roll. Mm-hmm. You know, I
2: like, I ain't scared to move no furniture.
0: Yeah, that's right. So,
2: uh, so, you know, I wasn't going to be a, a punk, a pushover, nothing like that. So, um, you know, so I, I I started getting, you know, I kept presenting it and more and more people started showing up that looked like us. Yes. And as those audiences became darker, yes. then um, the reception was much better. And, and then to the point that at one conference i think it was american educational research association meeting i had a brother who was sitting next to me yes he heard it for the very first time yes and he started crying and he was he was a, a panelist mm-hmm. and cuz some of the symptoms that i talked about
3: yes uh, oh.
2: he started seeing that they related to him and his doctor was misdiagnosing them hmm. so uh, he even had rashes and so he was wondering why he would break out when he would go to work. Uh-huh. He's a professor going to a historically white campus. Yes, it's huge. And when he would be in faculty meetings and all this stuff, he just break out. And it was because he was so racially um, uh, insensitive, and and kind of a hostile environment. So um, you know the reception got better, uh, and then it has grown, and now it's pretty much international and viral. I just saw something in uh um in the UK that got hmm. released. And you're starting to see dissertations all over the world and you know and publications all over the world in different disciplines. So we know that it's relevant and it's speaking to the pain that people experience.
0: Yeah. No, I love that story because when when Asia first mentioned the idea of racial battle, battle fatigue to me I I was I was because I was like, wait, how have I never heard of this? And I was like, oh, this is this is this thing that I'm experiencing. And I have it. And I love that you said like that reaction that people give gave at first. Oh, it's in your head. Are you being soft? Because I do that to myself. Oh, don't you know, you got it because we're raised a certain way to, you know, accept all this pressure raised in a culture that says, oh, you know, everything's going to be against you. But then when you're up in it, you're like. Is this how it's supposed to be? Is it supposed to be this hard and this difficult? So you mentioned some of the symptoms, like in your research, can you just go through for our listeners, what are some of those symptoms mm-hmm. that, uh, of racial battle fatigue? So, so when folks can, uh, uh, we know we have uh, a problem with uh, diagnosis in the black community and, and medical treatment. So right. how can you help us educators better be more informed uh, on our own you know health and well-being
2: oh, no problem so there's basically three major categories of um racial battle fatigue so there's the psychological stress responses There, are the emotional behavioral stress responses and then there's the physiological stress responses so let's start with the psychological and you you'll probably if you had a checklist you'll probably check off many of these but Have you ever been frustrated in these racially insensitive and hostile environments? Probably you have, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You may have grown defensive um, towards some of the reactions and responses that you receive. You could grow um, apathetic, irritable. Um, You can have sudden changes in mood, shock. Like we always seem like we're shocked. So if we're shocked, then that means that we were... um, not on guard for the potentiality that something might happen like it did. Yep. Or if, we, or if our guards are up and usually when our guards are up, that's also stressful because we're not supposed to be guarded all the time. Mm-hmm. So then it can lead to anger, disappointment, resentment, anxiety, worry, uh, disbelief that it even happened, right? Uh, definitely disappointment, um, helplessness, hopelessness and potentially fear. And I always say that, particularly for Black faculty, staff, students, and, and even other racially marginalized groups, we live between risk and fear. Mm. Risk and fear, because we have to navigate and negotiate how we respond, how we act. Should I speak up on this? Should I say stay silent? Yep. Should I make a big deal out of a, a big deal situation or should I just bite my lip? All of that is stressful. So that's that's the psychological stress responses. The emotional behavioral ones is uh, um, John Henryism, Jane Henryism. Yes, stereotype threat. Yeah uh, It's uh, uh, maybe increased uh, commitment to spirituality. Um, How about uh, imposter syndrome? Yes. We've all experienced that, right? Uh Uh, It can even lead to procrastination. Um, Some of the bad um, maladaptive responses are increased smoking, increased use of alcohol, swearing. Um, You might withdraw from people, Hmm. right? You might um, increase your commitment, your spiritual commitment, or you might withdraw from it. Yep. Right. So um, you might have changes within your family dynamics. So all of those are emotional, behavioral ones. Then you have the physiological ones, and those physiological ones are things like headaches. You might mm. grind your teeth at night, um, clench jaws, um, chest pain, shortness of breath, muscle aches, rashes. As I mentioned earlier, um, you might have sleep disturbances. Mm-hmm. Um, insomnia, yep. frequent illness. Because think about it, if you can't go to bed at night and sleep, recover, rejuvenate, rest, then and if you're on guard during your sleep like you're on guard during the day, then when does your body have time to recuperate? So really what you're doing is it's like if you have your fist clenched during the day because of all the things you have to deal with. And then you go to bed and sleep and your fists are still clenched. You're on guard. Mm -hmm. So that leads to increased um, likeliness that you could be sick. So you'll catch colds a lot. All right. You might get the flu. Um, You might just feel like you got constant migraines. So all of those are physiological responses to racism and the fact that our body is telling us that we're not in a natural environment where we can be fully human.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Oh. So what we have to realize is that uh racism is a violent act, and the body codes racism as an attack, as a race-related attack, a violent act. That's that's
0: that's that's powerful, you know. When you, when you start to go through all of those symptoms, and and I I'm just like, got like you said, it is the checklist, <laughs> and and it, it it's, it's frightening in a way, you know, because going through this, and I've been teaching for fifteen years. I've stuck with it for fifteen years, you know, and and all of those experiences I have had in that fifteen years, and 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 the question becomes: It's like how much can I take, is it, what am I doing? What, what is the ultimate cost to me, Kevin Adams as an educator, you know, to stick this thing out, you know, and, and with the goal of like, when we enter this stuff, you know, I entered at a time where I think it's a belief where it's like, you retire, you, you teach for 30 years, you know, I want to be there for the kids. I'm halfway through. Um, I, I enjoy what I do. I think, I think I'm good at it, but, like I've I've waited. I'm like, when will this extra stress? Because like I'm, you know, coming into it, I heard from white teachers. They're like, oh, year five, year three, you know, it, it becomes oh, it's so easy. It's so easy. I have never felt like it's easy that I don't have to have that 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 like you said, risk and fear. Right? Yeah. It's risk. What do I risk for my students? Right? What do I not care about? You know, you teach a lesson. I planned something out and I, I fear what, what is the reaction, right? I just went through having administration pushback on I me, mean, not too bad, but still, you know, really question the motivations of my student and why they were doing something. And, and ultimately they were doing something for the good of the community. And it was pushed back by one parent. And, and it was like, I had to answer for all of this. And I was like, it wasn't a big deal. This, like, this is not where we were going. But uh, you know, that's my question is is what are your thoughts about like being able to stick it out, resisting and, and being able to kind of maintain throughout all of this, considering everything you've learned about racial battle fatigue?
2: Well, you you know, it we have to realize that we're dealing with it. Because if, if we don't realize it, then what we do is we set ourselves up, um, for being, like I said, not on guard, but also in kind of a state of improper alert, mm. and what that does is it it compromises our um, physiological symptoms, psychological um, overload, um, and definitely your emotional and behavioral stress will go up. Let me let me put it in in this way. Uh, My mentor is Chester Pierce, was Chester Pierce. He was a psychiatrist at Harvard University, professor emeritus, died a few years ago in his 80s. And he's the one that gave us racial microaggressions. All right. So he coined that term. Um, And as I worked through all of these things, um, you know, I I always would um, pass it off to him, just say, what do you think? And he would say, well, you're, you're on the right track. We need to do this. But Dr. Pierce had this thing called uh, STEM, right? And it's way before science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. His version of STEM as a, a psychiatrist was this. Um, the more your STEM is oppressed, your stress goes up. Now, let me tell you what STEM means. STEM is your space, your time, your energy, and your mobility or your movement. So anytime an oppressive force controls your space, your time, your energy, and your mobility, then you are dealing with a stress load. When you have control over those those areas, space, time, energy, and mobility, then your stress load goes down. Now, we have to control our STEM. Now, I have something called, um, you know, I look at trauma-informed care to racial battle fatigue, and there's three R's. One of them is realize, all right? We have to realize the systemic and individual nature of racism and how it causes racial battle fatigue. The next R is recognize. We have to recognize the signs and symptoms of racial battle fatigue, those things that I enumerated a few minutes ago. And then we have to respond, that's the next R. Respond by fully committing to strength-based, acid-based coping strategies. And the last R is this, we have to resist the individual, institutional, and systemic efforts at racial re-traumatization, right? So allowing the system, the the environment, the ecology, to re-traumatize us. So what does that mean? Uh, what's some of the easy things that we can do? Some of the easy things that we can do is make sure your home looks like Asia's home, that that picture in the background, your picture, uh, Kevin, in your background. You got to have blackness if you're mm-hmm. black people mm-hmm. in your house. You have to control the energy and the um, the environment because if you have to deal with a hostile climate once you leave your door. because yeah. we know. That the enemy, they attack as soon as the black person leaves their house. It's right. And on. sometimes with like Breonna Taylor, you, That's you right. might be in your house in your That's bed. Right. Yeah. say that again.
3: Right. Yeah. So
2: if the environment um, feels uh, comfortable, that it it reinforces your blackness, your culture, um, that is one of the most healthy things you can do. And so we have to move away from those things that. Doesn't um, repair and restore us, right? And so, and we have to move away from uh, allowing uh, stimuli to come in that threatens our African cosmology. Yes, right. And so, Joseph Baldwin talks about um, the kind of African um, socialization and African cosmology, and those are the things that are always at risk. Um, that the television, the radio, and the outside uh, world threatens your Blackness. Yes. So I don't even watch many Black movies, Black television shows because it's all propaganda,
3: mm-hmm. just like it
2: was with like Harriet, yeah. right? All propaganda, right? And so what it does is it, it, it plays on uh, people who are unsophisticated who just go in there not with a critical consciousness? Yes, and that's what Baldwin talked about. The African consciousness is at threat. So the for right now in the era that we're in, it's um, particularly important for black women to watch their their African consciousness, their mind, because of menticide out there. So the attack primarily is on the black woman's mind yes. and the black man's body. Yes. Oh, mm. those are the two things. Those are the two ingredients needed for genocide.
1: Can we huh. talk about that? I will, two things. This, that nuggets, Kevin. It's a good day, Kevin. <laughs> it's a brilliant day.
0: It's We're a brilliant it, day. It, it, day. That, it, this it is
1: blessings. Blessings. Yeah. So that, I need you to go back and talk about that in one moment. But I, I wanted to say this that. Um, A month or so back, I was talking to a group about my research, and a woman said to me, You know, I couldn't get pregnant as a teacher. It's a black woman told me this. And until I left teaching, and then I could get pregnant. And she said, until you talked about till I was talking about racial battle fatigue and how it affects the family. She said, I I didn't have the words, I didn't know. And it just dawned on her. So I just think about that panel you talked about and like how many people like once they know they can never not know
3: right
1: um so yeah i just and i wanted to put that out there to the audience members because you didn't mention it and i want to talk about like this idea and i'm not obviously this is not my like life's work but infertility Mm -hmm. right it makes sense that's a part of it it can be um now can we go back to the woman's mind and the man's body, the black man's body, you no know, black woman's mind um, with this racial battle fatigue and like, how do we like resist, please? Yes.
2: No, no, no problem. What we, what we have to do, and we have um, a book that's coming out. It's uh, the third edition of the Racial Crisis in American Higher Education. I have a chapter in that, that breaks all of these things down. It should be published this summer, but we have to understand that black people are targets of genocide. We're targets of genocide. So um, some people might hear that and say, well, wait, "What do you mean? What do you mean genocide? Come on, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. you know, genocide, right? That's that's something um, that that's happened, right. You know, the indigenous folks here, or or you know, later on. No, no, no. Um, and actually, this is really timely. In 1951, William Patterson took to the UN, so that's Mm -hmm. 70 years ago. Yes. Took to the UN a document, a report, that said, we charge genocide. Yes. And what it was was a a complaint on the US government for victims against the Negro people. Now, what he did was he looked at what was happening in the short period of time that we call the Holocaust and the crimes against the Jews there. Yep over 400 years of crimes against Black people, enslavement, um, the, the Black Code period, Jim Crow, and if you understand Michelle Alexander's work, you yep. knew Jim Crow. Yes. Right? yes. So here's the part that we have to um, come to terms with. The definition of genocide is the whole or part destruction of a group at the mental and physical level. All right, so who is the most educated in our group? Black people, yes, it's the black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Who is the one that's most targeted with um crimes of the state? A black man, that's right. So if we look at the killers of unarmed black men, um, again with the police, 95% or let's say black people, 95% of the deaths are Black men. So we don't know all the names of those Black men that die every year, but it's upwards of 300 and about anywhere from 12 to 15 Black women. So the destruction of the body is on the man and the mind of the woman, because she's the one that's breaking glass ceilings. She's the one that's typically the only Black person in high-level positions. Mm right? So we have to control that. And if we can get her off her base and the black man off his base, then it can be a successful genocide. So like with that movie, Harriet, um, we don't uh, study Harriet. Most of the things that we know about Harriet was from grade school Mm -hmm. because they only allow elementary books to be published on her. Yep, It was one book really that I know of written, one biography. That was written about Harriet while Harriet was alive, and she talked to her. And that is uh, Harriet, the Moses of her people. Yes, right. Yes. And if you read this book, then you'll know that most of that stuff in the movie didn't occur. There was no, mm. there was no black man who was a slave catcher. How can a black man be a slave catcher? Mm-hmm. All right. What papers are going to get you out uh, of? Uh, being made a slave again. Go to the north and take it back to the <laughs> right. So what sense does that make? But we are so gullible that we are an emotional that we want to see ourselves and not think critically that we what we did was allow them to castigate the black man in that movie. So mm. all of Harriet's pain was black men. Yes. Nothing was about white supremacy. But if you read her book, if you read her book, and there was no love affair. That white slave master didn't love her. Yeah. There was no He didn't stop a Black man for putting a bullet in her head. That's not what Harriet said. Harriet said the opposite. He was brutal. And she said that um, she got beat severely, almost like skin coming off of her from a white woman who who made her stay up all night to um, um, make sure her baby, the white woman's baby, didn't wake her. <laughs> and if the baby cried, Harriet would get beat. If, and then Harriet was supposed to clean the house, she's just a little girl. She didn't know how to clean the house. The woman would severely beat her. And it was the white woman's sister who came down and then said, Well, how are you, how does she know how to clean if you never teach her? All right. So the thing is, what I'm suggesting only is this is that Harriet herself, Queen Mother Harriet, tells us about white supremacy and tells us all the things that occurred. Why would Hollywood do what they did and make up? You can give me creative license and make up all of those situations so they can control the mind. That's right. And, and make it easier. To see us in a less than position, so that's the menticide that we keep watching on TV and in movies because we don't think critically. So we have to really um, watch what we consume because what we're consuming is poison. Huh? Hmm. This this, this is her book is less than one hundred pages. Yep. Yep. Pretty. Say the book the book title again
1: for our audience, please.
2: It's written by Sarah Hopkins Bradford. The book is Harriet, the Moses of Her People, a biography of Harriet Tubman. She was alive when the biography was being written and was being interviewed by Bradford.
0: And that's the interesting thing, Dr. Smith, right now is is we see, and I think we see it with Dr. King, with all of these movies that come out, is there's a revamping of the story. Like yeah. the story is being told in a different way. And, and, and I, I love this point about critical thinking. And I think it ties back to your point about the role of resistance, right? As educators, and when I think about my role as an educator, it's, it's a big part of it is, is teaching kids to think critically about the world around them, about the situations they find themselves in. Yeah. You know, and, and I teach sixth grade right now and, and it's amazing how much white supremacy that the kids have already internalized about yeah. the way the world works and, and, and uh, relationships and why people are in certain situations, you know? Um, and so it really is fascinating. And to think about Harriet's example of, of who she really was versus who they want to tell us she was, mm-hmm. right? I, th- I think that's really powerful.
2: Yeah. you know. You know that old saying, if you want to keep information from black people, hide it in the book. Put it in the book. We can be um easy victims, easy prey. We know we've had study group book clubs since the 20s. We have to bring them back and have discussions. Uh, we need to read books like Urugu from the yes. Ani. Yes. Right? You can't read it by yourself because you know that's heavy. heavy so you gotta book. be in discussion groups and break that stuff down. We need to read the um, autobiography of Asada Shakur. Yes. Right? So we can understand um, what our plight is, what the historical um, situations were, and how are they changed today. Remember what they said. J. Edgar Hoover said what? Do not allow the rising of a Black messiah. Messiah. That's right. right? And so every time, what did he do when he had Black? Groups, he would kill the head. He, he shot King. He shot Malcolm. He shot Fed Hampton. Mm-hmm. All these people, right now, if they're millionaires today, then we have to kind of look at them a little differently, right? Yep. So, you know, because revolution like uh, Kwame Ture say, revolutionaries are millionaires."
0: They are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this
1: that is interesting. So, I, I think about that. And I want to switch this over to say, like, how many revolutionaries are administrators? You know, and how many? How yeah. I, I really I pushed upon this idea of um, black educators, um, BIPOC educators, in administrative positions, superintendents, the super assistant superintendents, these higher places, and ha- like, have you not experienced or turned an eye to? the racial battle fatigue of other black educators this whole time we just kept like moving up the ranks, Like mm-hmm. how does that work, right?
3: Mm-hmm. I yeah. think
1: about that and I think about, if you, is it this like, okay, when I get more power, then I'm gonna say something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I when when I get this next position, then I'm gonna speak up. And mean What's up,
0: superintendent, everything, I'm gonna change it all. Yeah.
1: yeah, when I become superintendent, I'm gonna change it all. And meanwhile, black folks, educators are fleeing education for their lives while waiting for someone to get some more power right so the same thing about the being a millionaire same thing with positions of power in education
2: mm-hmm.
1: right that's what i see
2: it yeah, no you, you're right and see not too many administrators are revolutionary but administrators can do revolutionary work mm-hmm. teachers can do revolutionary work because they control the the development of the minds, so you can teach off of the curriculum. Yeah, they say that hidden curriculum. So yes. we need to take ownership of that and make a hidden curriculum. What happened in the sixties and the seventies? You know, when you if you were born and you were in school then, these and in black communities, what you were being taught was kind of black power and black pride. Yes, and that is what the system feared. And so they had to destroy that. So they know education is a a valuable tool to lead to the liberation of Black people. So we have to control it. Remember the minds, everything that we do has to run through a litmus test. How does it impact the mind and bodies of Black people? Mm -hmm. And critically think about, um, as I've coined other terms, anti-Black misogyny anti-black misandry, what about those things um, promote the hatred, the the, the, um, destruction, the invisibility of black women? What about those things do the same for black men? Mm -hmm. So we have to get off of our oppression sweep states and say we're family. I don't care if you're poor, rich, gay, straight, trans, Um, you have ability issues whatever it is with family so if i allow you somebody to attack a member of my family yes i have no power
0: that's right Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's right i love
0: that i love that no i think i think it's so important just just when i think about the movement, you know, uh, for black liberation, it's, it's gotta be all of us. It, it can't be turning us against each other. It becomes easy, you know, and that's what I think when when I hear you talking about genocide is also, that's rooted in there, is turning us against each other, you know, um, and, and so, you know, looking back on everything you've talked about and thinking about um, racial battle fatigue, you know like the the question is can we can we hope to use and, and you said education can be powerful but is are we are we as teachers are we justified in looking and I, I don't know if it's justified but are we looking in the right place if we look to for education as a means of black liberation is education still because i think for a long time it was you know a space of it but i just think about the attack on schools um, black teachers in particular, even though they say they want us, anytime I think we move in that direction where we are, are pro-Black, uh, we uplift our students, our BIPOC students, we, we, we support LGBTQ plus, you know, students and community members, we try to build intersectional movements, I feel like that's constantly attacked, right? And, and, and more so, in our city, we have a lot of charter schools and schools that uh, don't make the cut and get taken over. And so, and it feels like those are often schools that are trying to do the things that we are talking about that are needed, right? To, to, and, and, and they're the schools that are more harshly judged for their test scores. Teachers get lower ratings. Um, so what are your thoughts about how all of that type of stuff plays out?
2: Yeah, we, we have to control our education. And we have to, again, learn from history. Right. So, one of the things is we need to have more Black independent schools again. Yes. Uh, we need to support them. We have the money. Don't believe that um, Black folks can't uh, pay for things. Uh, we have the economic ability within our group to basically control our whole destiny. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, we have to realize and, and believe in ourselves. What, what has happened now is when I said that attack is on the mind and the body, now, the major attack is on the Black woman's mind and the major attack is on the Black man's body, but the Black man's mind is being attacked too mm-hmm. and the Black woman's body is being yes. attacked mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So what we have to realize is what is education? You remember, um, Imwala Suja had a, a book called Too Much School and Too Little Education? Mm-hmm. Right? So we don't want to be school, we want to be educated mm-hmm. right so that could be um, after school programs mm. right if you belong to your a black church or something like that all right let's have something that educates them on critical thinking skills the kids in the school we have to take more control see what's happened is the black community is not only dealing with uh racial battle fatigue but one of the levels of racial battle fatigue that they're dealing with is cultural uh, um depression yes Right. So cultural depression, you want to, just, I'm just too tired. Uh, I, I want to give up. Uh, I, I don't have the energy. I, I, I'll Just leave me alone. I don't want to do that fight. But yeah. what that means is you need therapy, cultural mm-hmm. therapy.
3: Right?
2: So you need help to make sure that you can keep your head above water enough to fight your enemy, and we have to understand who is our enemy? Anybody that tries to attack the black body and yes. the black mind, right? So that means that we can't allow, we have to draw from the culture that we once uh, had in, mm-hmm. in African consciousness and culture. That has been attacked since the 60s, all right? So now what the culture that many of us uh, think is black culture is created by Hollywood. Yes. Sure. Right.
0: It could be oh, bought and
2: sold. So it could be so bought so and sold. Now, uh, Vicky D, uh Minaj uh is black culture. Mm-hmm. Black culture now. now some people could say that, yeah, well there were sisters dancing like that in Africa, but they had spiritual principles. By That's right. The cultural reasons why they dance a certain way. And we weren't looking at it in this, uh, uh 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 as a sexual marketplace. Yes, right? So don't try to confuse um, your 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 you know distorted uh, way expression of our culture with high culture of Africa, right? <laughs> and even the high culture. I mean, think about this. Um, uh, there's a book, um, Leroy Jones. Now um, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name that he uh, he changed his name to, but it was Blues People was the book, and he in that book. Um, He said that once African people stop singing um, songs uh, in their culture and in their language, from their culture and their language, and start singing the blues and jazz and stuff, we became African-Americans. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So we have to reach back. Now, there's nothing wrong with being African-American. Yes. Because there's some deep culture there. Yes. Because we built Tulsa. We built Rosewood. We built um, Bronzeville in Chicago. That's right. White supremacy attacked it. We mm-hmm. have to be smarter than our oppressors, but we have to go back and have that uh, belief in self, and that and develop that African consciousness. And that's what education is about. If you're not teaching to enlighten and 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 liberate and and protect the mind and also the body, now we have to become healthy because. Um, our attack is at a physiological level all around yep. and a mental level, right? So that means that if we're going to fight white supremacy, we got to be in shape. That's right. So we, we have to make a pledge. Now, we know that um, the cortisol flood that, that we get from having to be stressed out all the time also impacts our weight. Either yep. we get yep. too much or we gain a whole bunch, but it doesn't explain the whole variance of why black folks are overweight. So that means that we got to eat better. We got to meditate. We got to make sure our environment smell like collard greens. And, and you know, we got to have, uh, we don't, you know what? I didn't even know what potpourri, potpourri was. Uh, I was calling it potpourri when yep. I went to college, right? Yep, yep. And I didn't know okay. how to spell it. That's and right. White people would like, say, no, it's potpourri. I'm like, well, what <laughs> is potpourri? <laughs> And they say you put in a little bowl with all these flour, dried flowers. I said, no, no, no. We got collard greens <laughs> in the house. Yes. We got black-eyed peas. peas. That's we right. Fried chicken. Now, now, we can't have too much fried chicken, but it still smells good, <laughs> it right? It still does. So the thing is, we didn't have to have all them fake smells because we had stuff to nourish the body. But mm-hmm. here's the point mm-hmm. Big Mama used to cook in a way that was healthy. Because there were certain herbs and different things she would put in the food, um, lost track of. Because now people brag, "Oh, I don't cook. I don't know how to cook," and they feel good about that. No, no, no. We have to remember that those were like medicine women. Sure. So now we we've taken away the things that um, Black women um, were known for, and was had. um, You know, it was a strong part of our culture because she yep. kept us healthy. I mean, uh, we had to have castor oil yeah. like around this time. You know, I was just telling my, <laughs> my youngest son, we used to move all the furniture out of the house to do spring cleaning. That's right. That's clean right. clean it up, right? And then you move it back. Now, the, and we might not be able to do that nowadays, but we can't divorce ourselves from those things and traditions that protected us for 400 years. Now I'm not talking about eating uh uh, uh um uh, what's the stuff out the pigs uh, chitlins chitlins, I ain't about <laughs> chitlins right you can, <laughs> but, you can put that away but I'm talking about the healthy things that Big Mama um would make us take and eat that's right right that's right and we would be healthy Creams out the yard and that we so
0: now happy. we know. Those dark leafy greens are probably some of the best things that you could be yeah. eating, exactly. right? Right?
1: I think I think it's really, I'm glad that you're saying this. It's really important that we talk about, we hear about the, the healing and the food and the mindset and the reading, right? As all of this is a way to resist, right? Because we could get into a space where folks say, I want to do massage. I'm going to do all the things that some of them are cost money and folks can't yep,
0: afford. Yep. Right.
1: Yep. Um, and so we have to be like, we have to recognize like, yeah, eating healthy foods, putting good things into our body and sleep and all these things and, and building schools where the teacher belongs yep. and the student belongs are all part of that healing. Right. right? I, I love that we're talking about that. Cause that's really, really important that we, we have to recognize it. Mm-hmm. We have to um because if we don't we're going to continue to see folks again fl- like fleeing our schools fleeing leaving our black and brown students behind unfortunately uh dying early right mm-hmm. from the stress from the shock from the grief or things like that so i'm glad they were talking about this yeah
2: because you know black men uh, even though the the uh, mortality rates are the gap is closing Yes, Black men are still 25 to 35 years behind Black women, white women, and white men. So when you look at it, it's a 25 to 35-year gap. right? And so we have to understand what is going on about that. And the fact is, uh, even though I know all this stuff, I wasn't doing the sleeping thing like I should have done until this uh, uh, pandemic. And I've fallen in love with getting my sleep now. And guess what happened? the, the, my uh, memory has been the sharpest it's ever been. Mm. My recall has been the sharpest it's ever been because I got the appropriate amount of sleep. And we don't realize that because we're taxing our bodies. And so you'd be like, I can't remember what I was doing. I can't remember where I placed it. I can't recall that study, you know, and it's because our body is tired. And we just keep on running and you'll drink coffee and them, them little, them drinks that uh, rock stars and all that stuff. And, and let, me, let me give you some data on this on black women. Um, there was a study that said that black women who face daily um, racism had like a 2.7 odds of having lower cognitive function than those women who don't, right? Mm. The other thing is Black women who are experiencing uh, institutionalized racism almost were at three times more risk of lower subjective um, cognitive functioning. What does that mean? Memory loss, Alzheimer, and which is diagnosed because, misdiagnosed I should say, because it's part of the racial battle fatigue response. Mm. But they say, "Oh, oh, Mama got um, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Well, how did she get it? (laughs) Right? That's right. And we keep looking at the outcome and not what happened to lead to it. And we're misdiagnosing it because racism plays a heavy part in even um, cognitive functioning. So we have to protect that. And there's other studies that have shown that for Black women, that Black women who were stressed with racism, right. gendered racism as teenagers, by the time they get to their 40s and 50s, if their children who are adolescents experience racism, that they have a, um, more likely to face depression and all other types of things. And guess what? Now, that um, isn't the case for black men, but black men, if their children are stressed and their wife is stressed, then they're stressed.
0: They're, the stress so increases they, for them.
2: They already have their own cumulative stress, but then they take the stress load of the wife and the children. Now, guess what happens with that? It's a vicious circle. When the Black father is stressed, the children feel it. Yep. Sure. And then they become more stressed and more likely to have early onset of depression.
0: Mm. So it's a vicious
2: hmm. cycle. Dang. Right? So, so people can't get away from it. now. The mother doesn't feel as stressed about the father, but she is concerned, but yes. she doesn't take there's There's been no positive correlation there, but it shows a vicious circle.
3: Sure. Wow.
2: And that's how racial battle fatigue kind of works in ways in which we haven't fully understood it before because we didn't have the language and the ability to spotlight it.
0: It's just fac- <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. It, yeah, it's, I mean, because when you describe it all, especially that that kind of circular relationship of it all, it's stuff I've experienced in my own house and my own family, and watched it, you know, happen. And it it's just very interesting how that plays out um, as you go through these experiences, mm-hmm. and and this this deeper idea that it impacts more more than just like the individual right that it's it's bigger it's it, i think this goes to asia's research mm-hmm. is it it impacts the whole family mm-hmm. friends you know everybody yeah. and i just want to go back to this point where you talked about that cultural depression because i'm a member of the black educator caucus and and so it is doing extra work organizing right But, um, and I go into it tired, you know, and I'm like, wow, I do this extra stuff, you know, and, and, but I always come away feeling better. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it reminds me of those, those circles, those times where we come together. Like, I think when you go back to like, coming back to our African consciousness is communal in its nature. Right. right? And so coming together, and I think in a way you know, our community has been really impacted by the pandemic because it, it goes against our nature, which is to say, hey, we all in this together, we are communal, I got you, let's come together. And, and in a lot of ways, the very thing that helps us, harms us in this pandemic situation, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we don't have equitable uh, care. So I, I just really, that hit me big. But also you mentioned thinking about, in Asia, your point to administrators, Like, what would you advise how, so we have some administrators who listen to our show. What would you recommend for administrators, how should administrators, both BIPOC administrators, but also white administrators, how can they help to reduce racial battle fatigue? Because I know they can't, you know, because it is big, it's systematic, it's institutional, but what are some policies that a school, and I'm a part of our equity team cause I'm a black dude. So anything that happens with equity, I got to be there. Like, you know, cause, cause if I'm not there I don't know what they might do. Right. <laughs> might, and then if I'm not there, they're gonna tap me. But what, what are some things that we can do to, to just help to counteract the racial battle fatigue in educational institutions?
2: Well, one of the things we have to do is um, as much as possible limit our use of the term BIPOC Ooh. all right oh uh, talk about that well first of all I, as I understand it the origins of it comes out of Canada and that's because the POC um always kind of marginalized black and indigenous people so that's my understanding from uh where it comes from not that that's bad Yep. but what it does is we have to disaggregate our groups. Hmm. We cannot continue to put ourselves into a collective like that because then what happens is, whoever does the best skews the information for the people who are in most need. Yes. And so right now, Black people are in tremendous need, and Indigenous people too. All all these racialized groups yes. are who I call targets of white supremacy. Yes. So all these targets are in tremendous need, but at the very bottom of almost every social demographic factor that we see is Black people and Indigenous people, mm-hmm. but Black people. okay. And so what do we have to do? We have to disaggregate Black people as well. Mm-hmm. So we need to know what cisgender, Black women are experiencing, um, Black uh, gay women are experiencing, Black trans women are experiencing, Black women with a disability are experiencing. So once we get at the, the finite level, right, then we can start making claims about what is needed for each particular group. As long as we put them all together, then what happens is we will not get the um, attention that we deserve. So we, we have to start to disaggregate groups. And let me put it this way. Um, when uh, when you're in college, if, if the school, your university said that um, uh, we did a campus climate survey and the results come back from all the students and say, it's a very warm and welcoming climate, your first critique would, would be, well, what students, right? right? Yep. And then they would say, well, all students. He said, no, 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 you got to break that down for us. We need to know by race, right? And so you would be right to ask them that. So now let's think about Latinx as a group. Who does it benefit and who does it hurt? Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the attention that Puerto Ricans might need. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know what Guatemalans might need. We don't know what Honduran Honduran Americans might need, you know, because the biggest group is Mexican American, right? And yep. so we need to disaggregate all those groups, Asian Americans the same way. Yeah. Right? Because it's really they we talk about it's racist when you aggregate. So why do we keep perpetuating that? Right? So we want to know uh, the dropout rates by certain groups disaggregated. So we have to do very, we have to do better than that. Now for administrators, um, what we need is for them just to quit being so racist. One. <laughs> Uh,
1: <laughs> well, there it is.
0: There it
2: is. There it is. There's then, the
1: show right there.
2: And two, even if it, we look at Derrick Bell's concept of interest convergence, yes, they benefit more by mm-hmm. having Black folks in the schools That's right. uh, as teachers, as administrators, as staff, and as students. Right? That's right. So here's the thing. Um, we know that. So that means that we bring a resource to the schools that people drain from us and we don't get anything highly in return. That's right. Right. But what we've also learned from studies, um, Goldsmith has a study out that looked at black teachers um, and black teacher was black, um, white students, um, Latino and white students. And what they found was um, that when they had black teachers, their critical thinking skills went up their critical consciousness went up, um, their scores went up, but when they had white teachers, the black and brown students suffered.
3: Hmm. Sure.
2: All right, so that what that tell you that there's something that black teachers bring that other teachers don't have, particularly white uh, teacher, teachers. But oh, oh, let me say this: the white students benefited too and better for, way yep, yep, than, yep, yep. Than Than they did with just a white teacher. So there's something, language, there's something um, about what you are as a human being and your um, experiences that you are a master teacher that's being under-evaluated and underappreciated and under recognized. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. powerful it is powerful. And that word drain.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's
1: that's the feeling when I taught was drain. And it's interesting. Just recently, I started to tell people when they say, well, how long did you teach? Well, I was in education for 12 years. and 10 of those years, I up- uplifted right supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Into those last two years where I started to speak up and do the things you spoke about and then I, be, I began to feel that drain and i began to be pushed out yep yep yeah so that yeah that's so that's so interesting
2: yeah what we have to do as black folks is make um these profess these um professions are, are night jobs and yes the liberation of our people are day jobs, day jobs. Mm. Exactly. that finances your liberation right so you take the resources that you can from your collective education and experiences and let somebody um, pay you for those resources and then you use that as an opportunity to provide for your people so um yeah i i'm a professor i i'm well paid i'm I'm well recognized Mm -hmm. that's my that's my night job that's my day job is everything i do i mean I got the uh, what was the Spencer Foundation's Mentor of the Year award, right? That's because I'm helping mm. black people. That's right, right? I'm helping um, young black professors um, to get tenure and promoted, right? Yes, I'm helping graduate students. So my goal is the liberation and the the edification of our people.
0: Mm. That that's what that means when you talk about that again. African consciousness. What African education traditionally was, it was more of that one-on-one. Those are the most powerful people—people who brought me aside, put my arm, put their arm around me, let me understand where, like, where I was was okay. You know that I was going to be somebody. I had, you know, a destiny because I was important and I came from important people, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's where it goes back to. um, I think when it when we be talking about resisting you know, resisting, uh, the racial battle fatigue and, and just, and just, I don't know, it's just powerful stuff and <laughs> stuff that I'm, you know, I am at the end of spring break. I'll, t- I'll be honest. I didn't want to, I'm like, can I, can I not go back the last two <laughs> months? Can I not? Cause that's how I'm, I'm, you know, like in the end, like I'm like the Bernie Mac joke. Cause like I go on break. I go on break, Right, right sitting at my desk, I, I'm on break. I, I'll be break, back break. when I'm I go on break, break,
2: That's Bernie Mac said. Yeah. Well, see, but, you, gotta, you gotta shift um, that cognitive reality and make that your night job.
0: Yes.
2: Help the students, all students. Now, we we, as black like right. people, we gonna help everybody That's anyway. Right. That's right. But we gonna help all the students, but make like this, your podcast and other things that helps yeah. for the liberation of our people. What we have to remember is um, we got misled with the concept of church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Church talks about a broken body of
0: people. Yes,
2: right. Well, it primarily focuses on on Jesus, but Heru in Kemet, Egypt, was also a broken body that had to be put back together, right? So, what church really represents? What you were talking about? about um, this pandemic and the need for Black people to be together, it's part of the broken body. Mm -hmm. So people um, kind of misunderstand the purpose of church or organization. It's about the energy and the power of the collective coming together for a common goal, right? So what we need is more organizations. That's what Kwame Ture used to always say. The problem with Black people is that we lack or, and he used to use his little accent, organization, right? He said, we always had a plan for the march, but we didn't have a plan for the day after the march. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: so what we have to do as a collective is remember to have, to join organizations of like-minded people with like-minded goals, and then um, enjoy that opportunity of coming together for a common good, right? Because that is the um, body of Haru coming back together, or as a Christian would say, the body of Christ yes. coming together. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: Doctor Smith um i hate to end
2: this no problem no problem
1: and we will be here all night just getting the jewels the gems i have written down stem i've written down so much information i hope that our audience can hear this
0: book recommendations all of it like i I mean it's it's all this is a good one this is i mean i and i think it's important because We've been talking about racial battle fatigue, but I think this gives a real solid context for you know um, this podcast and, and and just I think the importance of the work that uh, you've done, Dr. Smith and the work Asia that you are engaging in and all the work, I think it's more powerful. and I love this idea that people were like, oh, that's not real. And then they start to see it because I think that's how it always is is, is that people are like, oh, you're making this up. Right. And like I'm not making this is this is my lived experience. If you let me study it intellectually and, and you allow me to take it where it goes,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you're going to discover some things that are, I think are important to, you know, this institution of education that is, you know, in need of more black educators. And as you pointed out, Dr. Smith, all kids mm-hmm. benefit from having black educators, all kids. It's better to have black teachers and your school mm-hmm. than not.
1: Yeah, and not draining
0: them by the way and not draining them
2: you got to support them give them the resources and you know recognize them and their kind of community cultural wealth that they bring
0: yes all right well
1: we're gonna have to wrap up this episode episode (laughs) because we're gonna be all night out here with these I'll,
2: I'll just, come this, back. i we when you back.
1: invite. Me. Yes, we will. We will be inviting you back for sure. Um, because we still didn't have any chance to really talk about some of the stories that we've heard, and we'd love to hear um your opinions and thoughts and ideas about some of the folks that have come across um our podcast so far. Um, but yeah, just thank you so much for coming and speaking to us for, to our audience. We just we really appreciate your research and your work. Um. Just thank you so much.
2: Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm happy to be here.
1: Five of the exit interview. We'll see you all next time.
3: Bye. <laughs>